17. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 19. Young disciples, if you need sermon guides, they're right back in front of the sound booth. My international friends, there are some sermon guides, especially for you, right over here on the side table. Now, young disciples, Luke 17, 1 through 19, you're going to want for your sermon guides. Well, today's series that we're continuing in is in the Gospel of Luke titled Upside Down. And you can find today's passage on, 800, on page 876 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. So today's passage is several different sections that scholars are in disagreement about, whether they kind of stand alone each or they are connected together. And I'm going to take the route today of making a connection between them. And so here's how I'm going to break it down. How to avoid scandalous sin. Young disciples and my international friends, scandalous is a word that you need for your guide. And there are going to be two pictures that I think break down how that we avoid scandalous sin. And ultimately the answer that we'll be led to is the title of today's sermon, Scandalous Grace. And fam, I want to give you a heads up. This one's going to be heated today. Okay? So just get ready. Since today's passage is so long, instead of uh, asking you to stand for the reading of it, I'm going to be reading it as we go. And still yet, let us posture our hearts in such a way that we can say of God's word, the Lord has spoken to us, and respond together. Thanks be to God. So this week, I kind of started hyperventilating a little bit, okay? It was like, okay, what's going on? This, this feels familiar. <gasps> what is this? Well, I think it was just a little taste of back in 2020. Now, I'm not on social media very much, but I do post on Twitter because of my writing for the Upstream Collective. And what began to invade my feed, even though it's usually all missions concentrated, was things like this. A QAnon rally that invoked the name of Jesus to anoint Donald Trump against his trash opponents. Also, an announcement by Hillary Clinton that right-wing extremists, including the Supreme Court, have already stolen the next presidential election. Also, a school shooting in St. Louis at the hands of a young black man with an AR-15. Also, an uproar about Kanye West, who wore a White Lives Matter shirt, and then started making anti-Semitic comments. Also, Elon Musk purchased Twitter in order to, quote, free the bird. Now, the list could go on and on. It was just that they all kind of concentrated within a short time frame. And then came all the commentary, right? Rally to this leader, to this cause, to this group, to this opinion, Put your faith in someone or something. And it was a reminder that we are still in the midst of a moral convulsion. A moral convulsion where all the old moral lines got erased and the new lines have yet to be redrawn. And so all of us have our heads on a swivel like I did yesterday at Holiday World with three of my daughters, just like, what, where are you? What, what, is, what, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Oh, are you in that group? Or am I over here? Oh, oh, you know what I'm saying? Anybody hyperventilating a little bit with me yet? <gasps> We're going back to that. <gasps> okay. 
Now, why in the world am I starting a sermon this opinions? And so I'm bringing in these things because I seedly connected to this passage. After addressing the Pharisees for a big chunk of chapter 16, Jesus turns back to his primary audience, the disciples that he's shepherding. And probably in light of how the Pharisees, that is the trusted spiritual leaders of the day, were leading people astray, Jesus starts his discourse by addressing how to not be like them. In other words, how to avoid scandalous sin. Now this is the foundational theme that I think pulls the ensuing sections together. And it begins in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is referring to here, I think we need to unpack the word that he uses that we translate temptations to sin. It comes from the Greek word skandalizo, which carries the literal sense of a bait stick on a trap. That is the thing that like triggers it to close. It's also sometimes translated as a cause for stumbling. And so this is where we get the word scandalous. It is sin that is scandalous. So terrible that it causes others to stumble. It leads them astray. And not just any others, but specifically, Jesus says, one of these little ones, just one, led astray. Who does this refer to? Well, perhaps it could be literal little ones, like children. But I think that in the context, it seems more in reference to anyone following Jesus, his little flock, and especially to those who are young or weak in their faith. Connect that with the Pharisees, and what you get is this guarantee that Jesus is making. Here is what he is guaranteeing to his disciples and to us. Scandalous sin that leads people astray is coming, and it's coming from trusted spiritual leaders. And that's why I started the sermon the way I did. What Jesus is describing then is all around us now. Influential people are using Jesus' name and Jesus' language and Jesus' word as they lead people to put their faith ultimately in someone or something else. And because Jesus is so protective of his little ones, the consequences for leading them astray sound terrifying. And we don't know exactly what they are, but Jesus says it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be cast into the sea. Anybody know what a millstone is? About this big, used to grind grain. It's huge and heavy. There would be no coming back from having that done to you. And now we may look at this as spiritual people that we are, and say, yeah, take that, you big bad wolves. 
Like, how dare you try to lead us little ones astray, right? We put ourselves into the story. But look at what Jesus says in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. What's he mean? Here's what he means. That we all have capacity for scandalous sin. Not only to be taken by it, but to cause it ourselves. So beware. Listen to Paul, to the Ephesian elders, not to the Ephesian weirdos on the margins of the church, to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. In the past five years, I have seen how quickly a sheep can fixate on a leader or a cause or a group or an opinion and begin to twist things in the flock. Ooh, who's he talking about? Come on, man. Let us in. Give us some hints. Well, if you need an example, I'm standing right here. Okay? Every week, I have a captive audience and a platform and a live stream and a Bible. Imagine how easy it is for me to get away from what God wants me to say to his people and throw in there a little bit of what I would kind of like to say to these people, okay? And I don't always get it right. And so I want you to consider how easy it is to take something you are uniquely passionate about and then hold it as a standard for others to be faithful Christians, all right? Think about this in terms of our doctrinal framework as a church. I want to put it up here so that you can see it. On the one end of the spectrum, you have orthodoxy. These are the beliefs that we consider essential to Christian faith, as well as to membership at Antioch. These are, for example, our statement of beliefs. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have what we've titled preference. These are tertiary beliefs that are not essential to Christian faith, nor membership at Antioch. Some examples would be political affiliation or the minutia that goes down into political perspective. Or eschatology, that is how you think the end times are actually going to work out. Or the responsible use of alcohol you have in one church, teetotalers and those who can enjoy a good bourbon responsibly. And then you also have children's education. That's a topic that we, hey, we got people in public, kids in public school, people in private school, people in home school. You're not going to hear from us, hey, you need to do one or the other in order to be a faithful Christian. And then somewhere in the middle, we've discovered kind of a third category that we didn't realize was there, and it is called fellowship. And these are convictions that are not essential to Christian faith, but that we do hold and teach as pastors, and we ask our members to submit to them even if they hold different convictions. So let me give you some examples. One would be Reformed theology. Now, that's not hyper-Calvinism, okay? That's not us, you know, holding the doctrines of grace in one hand and the Bible in the other, okay? But it is an influence of a particular uh, 
angle of theology or baptism by immersion or expository preaching, church discipline. We don't shun anyone here. Church discipline is meant to be a restorative process for someone who is going astray, but we do practice it. And then continuationism would be another example. That is, we believe that the Holy Spirit's still around and he still works in powerful ways, okay? Now, imagine how tempting it is to move something from one part of the spectrum to another. So, something that is in the essential category moved to non-essential. You know, you say the Bible is trustworthy. I don't really feel comfortable with that anymore, so I'm going to say it's not trustworthy. And then things begin to be twisted in the flock. When you're discussing the Word of God in family group, you go, yeah, that part, I don't really think it belongs in the canon of Scripture or whatever. Okay? Or how easy it is to move something from non-essential to essential. You can put anything here, right? Hey, I have a high, high opinion of of homeschooling. I'm going to move it to a matter of fellowship. Or I think to be a faithful Christian in our cultural moment, you need to fight for your Second Amendment rights. Okay, I understand that you're passionate about that, but you can't move it into another category and be in good relationship with your brothers and sisters. We've not said that's a matter of orthodoxy. It's not even a matter of fellowship, okay? So, then left without accountability, doing this, the switching of categories, can easily lead to speaking twisted things and drawing others into it. And this is not to say, listen, this is not to say that you can't be passionate about something in the life of the church. It's just that you can't hold it over fellow members as a standard for orthodoxy or fellowship. And that's why Jesus doesn't just warn us about it, but he tells us how to avoid it. He continues in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So what's he saying here? Basically, Help each other, right? Little flock, fight for each other, not against each other. And what are our weapons to do this? Something far more powerful than any leader or group or cause or opinion has. Cruciform love. Do you know that word cruciform? It means cross-shaped. It reflects the love that we experience through Jesus on the cross. It's a love that's so divine that it does three things. And young disciples, you want to write these down for your sermon guides. It rebukes, it repents, and it forgives. Now let's go through each of those one at a time. Rebuke. This is a word that means to verbally correct. To love someone so much that you're willing to say something when they're going astray. Now, there may be some of you in the room who are like, sign me up for that. Is there like a position in the church I can have? Like the lead rebuker? Like, I, oh man, sign me up. Listen, we're going to get to you later, okay? That's you. Others of you, you would rather eat worms than to go rebuke someone. And I'm with you in that category, all right? We usually consider ourselves extra gracious, don't we? 
Because when people sin against us, we just eat it. We eat it like worms. There they go. But in reality, it may not actually be a surplus of grace that we have so much as a lack of love. You see, this is the upside-down nature of cruciform love. When you are hurt by the sin of another, that is a burden that's already laid upon you, you have the added burden of going to confront that person knowing that it might lead to more hurt for you. And you might be really able to forgive and forget without ever having a conversation with them, but then that leaves the offender completely blind to their offense. And that's just selfishness on your part. So instead, rebuke. You know someone who's been rebuking me for 10 years and he's still my friend? Robbie Googe. And it's not like, you know, you're picturing in your head this like moment where he sits down and opens his Bible, you know, and goes through passages and just then like hammers me. No, it's in the course of our relationship. In fact, one time I'll give you an example. I was literally saying to Robbie, I want us to have the kind of relationship where you can call me out. Okay, I need that as I'm a leader up in front of people, this example to people, and I have all these blind spots. You know what he said to me? He said, you know, that's really hard when you get, up all, you, when you get all up in your feels. Because I'm an emotional guy, you know? And when I get all up in my feels and you try to rebuke me, I'm going to pout. There's not a lot of y'all that could say that to me, but Robbie could. Why? Because we have a deep, intentional gospel relationship, and I need that. And it hurt when he said it, but I knew it was true, and I came around to it, okay? That's what I'm talking about, having those kind of relationships. You need that in your life. The second one is repent. Now, this is a word that means to turn around, to go in the opposite direction of the sin, and repenting in response to rebuke is a really hard thing, isn't it? I just admitted that to you. Getting rebuked can feel embarrassing, infuriating, and confusing, even if it's from someone you trust and who does it in a humble posture. So just imagine when rebuke comes from someone that you don't trust or someone who does it in a foolish way or someone who is downright wrong about what they're rebuking you over. Let me give you an example. I think I've told you all this one before, but when I lived overseas, I had a female colleague, and a man began stalking her. And one night that man called her while I was with her, and so I said, I'll take your phone. And I got on the phone and said, this is her brother in Christ. I think so spiritual, you know, I wasn't lying. I said, this is her brother, and I told him to leave her alone in some very choice ways. And he threatened her in a very scary way. And I lost it. And I told him what he could do with himself. And if I ever found him, what I would do with him. Now, put the phone down. I'm sweating, red face. You can imagine if you were in the situation. Don't be so spiritual. Come on. And there was a young guy on a short-term visit who was in college and in the quiet awkwardness of that moment, I hear a noise that sounded like this. Very, very gentle. 
okay? Flip, 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 flip. Opens the Proverbs. He says, Brad, I need to tell you something. This is in front of everybody. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Thank you for that. There's some other things that the anger of man can produce. So, let's talk about this later. <laughs> now, the thing is, was he, was he right on some level? Yeah. Did I have to go that far? Probably not. But probably not the best timing for that. And yet, I had to wrestle with the fact that he did it in kindness, and there was a kernel of truth for me to receive and turn from. All right? And so, this is the upside-down nature of cruciform love to receive the rebuke as an act of kindness and to search for at least the kernel of truth that's in it and then to repent of as much as you need to repent of. Maybe not all of it, maybe not fall on the ground groveling, but the part that you say, okay, there, I see that. Repent of that. Third, forgive. This is a word that means to leave or to let go, meaning to let go of the offense. And it's the act and response to the sinner who has repented. And it's not just saying, I forgive you, while continuing to hold the offense tightly and keep a record of wrongs. It's not measuring the quality of the repentance and forgiving with the stipulation that it never happens again. This is the upside-down nature of cruciform love. That if a person offends you seven times in a day, in other words, over and over and over without end, that annoying person on social media who keeps just saying that thing over and over and over and over, and you rebuke them over and over and over, and they repent over and over and over, it's not your place to question their repentance, but only to forgive over and over and over. <laughs> Here's what I'm about to say, Aaron. I'm not saying this because you said that, but here it is. <laughs> if you are really listening and thinking about what I just said and what this means in your life and in the life of a messy church in a cultural moment that makes for constant friction about everything, then you would be responding right now the way that Aaron did and the way that the apostles did in verse 5. Look at what they say. Increase our faith. Like this is a really spiritual way of saying, what the? There is no way we can do this. Like, Lord, help us. Who can love like this? Where in the world do you see love like this? It's simply not humanly possible. Try to manufacture a space that does these things without cruciform love, nor the power that fuels it, and it will devour itself. The first step in seeing, the first step in seeing this actually come to fruition is losing our faith in ourselves. Instead, Jesus says this in verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed you could say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you now it was believed that a mulberry tree could have the lifespan of 600 years and so that would make for a massive root system 
And so what's Jesus saying here? It's like saying, go ahead and muster all your strength, and you won't even budge that tree. But place the tiniest grain of faith in Jesus, and the whole tree will extract in an instant. In other words, it's not about the amount of your faith, but the object of your faith. Not how much you have, but who you place it upon. And he has the power to enable this kind of love in a community of sinners. Now Luke turns here and he gives us two small sections that I think shed further light on this reality. They unpack this foundational truth. And so this brings us to picture number one. Young disciples, here's the picture that you're going to want to have for your sermon guide. We read this beginning in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline a table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And then afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Well, this is confusing. Like, is Jesus condoning slavery? Or is he telling us how to treat employees? No, he is using a common worldly practice in order to make a bigger heavenly Simply put, when a servant did his or her duty, they weren't thanked profusely as if they did something extraordinary. They did not gain some greater standing for themselves because they went above and beyond. In fact, they didn't even set the standard for faithfulness, did they? The master did. Therefore, they should be humbled before the master. In other words, Jesus, it's kind of like he's asking someone who is expecting praise for themselves, okay, who do you think you are? Not like in the way that we say that that's mean, but in the way that's meant to make you reflect right now. Like, who do you think you are? And so the application here is you are like the servants of God, and God is like the master. And even if you think you have kept all his commands, and you've avoided scandalous sin, should you not be humble before your master instead of placing so much faith in yourself? Romans chapter 2 captures this in a way that's just perfect. Listen to it. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know what this is referring to? Scandalous sin. The people who have all the answers and are completely self-assured over and against all others. Ironically, these are the ones whom we should question the quality of their Christian faith. Because they think they are a guide to the blind, they are convinced that they have a special standing with the master and their lack of cruciform love twists things in the flock. Okay? And y'all, I get it from all sides and I've participated in it myself. You got it on the one extreme, you know, a group who's so concerned with what's happening in culture that they just see wokeism underneath every rock and around every corner of the church. You got the other extreme who's so passionate about racial inequality and justice that they see under every rock and around every corner systems that need to be broken down and people who are just viciously racist. It's like, okay, I'm glad you're passionate about those things, but like, who, who do you think you are? You know, like as you take this posture, who do you think you are that you can shut down your brothers and sisters in Christ and be such a guide to all them who are blind. And so let me give you an example that follows up from earlier. These are often the people who take Jesus' command to rebuke and they turn it into a posture and a platform, like it's an official position in the church. Now these are your cultural commentators, your truth tellers, your whistleblowers. And when you're in a conversation with them, you know it because you walk delicately because you don't want to get rebuked. Right? Oh, I don't want to go to that conversation. I don't want to talk about this because it's just going to be like a slap in the face because there's no prayerful consideration and there's no being weighed down with a burden of love for another. It just, boom, hits you. Now, for those of you who are not afraid of rebuking and speaking the truth and love to someone, I'm not telling you to be quiet. I'm not talking to you about this right now. We need you. Don't shut down. I'm talking about those who take this on as a full-time posture. And listen, friends, any of us can become this person when we get up on our high horse about an issue, can't we? Can. And so Jesus says to us, who do you think you are? Think about, reflect on this. We are unworthy servants. At best, we have only done what was our duty. And so the application, be humble. Be humble. And then to build on this, Luke gives picture number two. Here's what you're going to need, young disciples. We read this beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, according to the Old Testament, Lepers were commanded to keep their distance from the community in order to not spread that disease to others. 
And it also, however, gave provision for them to be freed from this ostracism if it was proved that their leprosy was gone. And so in that case, they would go to the priest who would inspect them, and then they would make an offering to the Lord and be pronounced clean. And so when Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests, he's saying, your leprosy is as good as healed. Go. By faith, go. And yet the healing, y'all, did not take place, if you notice, until they were already on the way to the priest. And so that meant that they had to have some measure of faith in, in Jesus in order to go to the priest in the first place. Now, can you imagine what it was like? Just you know, use your imagination for a minute to enter in to the story. You don't have to put yourself there as a leper, but you can be a spectator, all right? Imagine the moment when they are realizing that they were healed. One scholar writes it like this, and this is good for Hall- Halloween weekend, all right, because it's kind of, you're, you're just going to know it when you hear it. From cadaverous faces reemerged ears, nose, eyebrows, lashes, hairline, feet, toeless, ulcerated stubs were suddenly whole, bursting shrunken sandals. Knobby appendages grew fingers. Barnacled skin became soft and supple, and it was like ten new births. Now, we don't know what that moment was like for real, but we do know this, that nine of them continued on, probably going to the priest to be fully pronounced clean. Now, what were they doing? They were doing only what was their duty. But one of them came running back, praising God and thanking Jesus. Now, what was he doing? He was saying, essentially, here is my whole duty right now, to be humbly grateful to the God-man who had mercy on me. Like, I can get back to the priest later. Jesus even told me to do that. But right now... I'm going to fall at the feet of this man who healed me. Now, we might ask, like, where did this guy, why did this one guy get it but no one else? Well, we continue reading in verse 16, surprisingly. Now, he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, Samaritans, of course, were hated by the Jews. And it's a sign of how terrible the situation of leprosy was that a Samaritan would be living with a group of Jews, that they would tolerate him and he them. And it would have been expected that this man would be the last of the ten to give thanks to a Jewish healer. And yet, perhaps it was the very disdain of the faith community around him that made him the most eager, not for Jewish religiosity, but for mercy. And the most grateful when he received it. And so Jesus says something remarkable to him that he doesn't say to the rest. He says, your faith has made you well, or you could translate it, has saved you. There's almost this sense of like it's more than bodily. It's, it's, it's soul-level salvific what's happening here. 
And it's, so it's not, again, it's not the amount of his faith, but the object of his faith, Jesus Christ. And y'all, this is where, this is where this connects to everything else, and, and it brings all these sections full circle. When who you think you are isn't a praiseworthy servant, but a broken outcast. When you see yourself not as a guide to the blind, but as the blind who needs a guide, that's how to avoid scandalous sin. The heart of saving faith says, I need rebuke. I need repentance. I need forgiveness. And I'm so grateful when I receive it. And it's falling on your face at the feet of Jesus, not at the feet of someone or something else, any leader, any cause, any group, any opinion. It's very compelling. But how is it possible? Remember, we acknowledged together earlier that it was like, what? This is hard. Like, how, do you, how do you expect us to do this? Like, if I'm going to walk out of here and just try harder, like, that's a burden instead of a blessing. Well, it's possible, church, because Jesus became all these things that we have just talked about. Think about this. And you know what? Better than that, because I do this every week, begin to read God's word like this and see it like this. Even though Jesus never led anyone astray, he took the millstone and was cast into the sea. That's what the cross was about. It was him taking on the weight, greater of the millstone, the weight of the world's sin, and being tossed into a sea of separation, taking the punishment for our sins. Even though he was the master, he became the humble servant who did his whole duty didn't he? Perfectly fulfilling all of the law and yet still said, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to pick up my equality with God. I lay it down and I go to the cross for the sake of y'all because I love you. Even though he was the leper, he was the broken outcast, the foreigner, right? That's what he becomes on the cross cut off from everyone, unclean, unclean. Even though that's who he became, he was healed. He was raised to the praise of God. Do you see it in there? Do you see it in the scriptures? Not just me spinning it for you. Do you see it in the scriptures? There he is for you. And you know what that is? That's scandalous grace. Not scandalous sin that leads people astray, but scandalous grace that draws people in. And this is the upside down nature of cruciform love. When he was literally hurt by the sin of another, that is a burden already laid upon him. Then he took on the added burden of coming to confront you of your scandalous sin. That's what he is doing today by the power of his word and his spirit. He's coming and sitting beside you and saying, it's you. And he did all that so that you could be forgiven. That's why. 
That's why. And listen, if you are here today, like, and you, you sense what I just described to you by the Holy Spirit, Christ sitting beside you and saying, tap you on the shoulder, that's you. And I love you so much that I want you to know and I want you to turn away from it and come back to the Father. Would you do that today? If you're not a Christian, would you do that today? If he's tapping you on the shoulder, he will welcome you gladly. He went to the cross to prove it. Rose from the dead to show he has the power to make it work in your life. And if you're here and you're already a believer and he's tapping you on the shoulder like he did for me this week, come on home. Come on back. Turn away from that and and let him bring you back from going astray back to the Father. And listen, let's do this not only so that we can be forgiven, but so that we can take on cruciform love, cross-shaped love. So that in the context of this community, we can be people who rebuke and repent and forgive and work through all those messy things together in order to show love to one another. You know what this is? What we've described here in this passage is something that we here at Antioch call intentional gospel relationships. That's what an intentional gospel relationship looks like. And it doesn't depend on our power, but upon the power of God. Listen, do you know why people are leaving churches so much in these days? Because this is so hard. And the thought is, if I can go somewhere else, it won't be that hard. Or I won't have to go deep. I can just move in, attend, and move back out. And I can avoid those things that are so hard. And God's saying, I'm inviting you to something so much better. Church, we can be a community of sinners who love each other, whom Jesus has enabled us to pursue intentional gospel relationships. And so here's my final application, church. In the days ahead, in the next two years that are going to lead up to another presidential election where we all lose our minds over things, we are going to need each other, fight for each other, not against each other. And this table in front of me, that is where we come every Sunday laying aside every leader, cause, group, or opinion. And we say, this is what we need most. Right here is our master, our savior. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today, church, we are announcing that Jesus took our scandalous sin so that we could receive his scandalous grace. Amen. So come to this table if you're a baptized believer. Come to this table and lay down whatever you were gripping hold of today that was giving you some sense of meaning in your life outside of Christ. Come, break off the bread, dip it in the juice, take it. Say, I need it. That's what I say when I go over here. I say, amen, I need it. (laughs) And if you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, you know, don't take this. Don't pretend. 
Instead of coming up here, come to the back and talk to one of us in the back who will help you put your faith in Jesus or where you're sitting in the chair right now. If you feel him tapping you on the shoulder, just turn to him in your heart and say, I want to follow you. I don't want my old life anymore. I want the life that you have to offer and only you can offer. There'll be folks in the back to pray with anyone who has any other need going on in your lives. Church, let's pray. Father, we bow before you.